Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at tvo.org slash daily. COVID-19 came out of the blue for many of us, but 20 years ago, TVO's program Studio 2 took note of how deadly diseases were starting to travel beyond their customary boundaries. Dr. Kevin Kane is a professor of medicine at the University of Toronto and a clinician scientist at University Health Network at Toronto General Hospital. He spoke to TVO then, and we welcome him back in the provincial capital to find out more about what we've learned since. Hello, Dr. Kane. It's nice to chat to you. So we spoke to you uh, 20 years ago, and you spoke about pandemics, pretty much predicting it was going to hit fast. What went through your mind when the world started to shut down over COVID-19? Well, many things went through my mind, but I guess perhaps the most saddening was that, um, you know, we're supposed to learn from history, but we just seem to uh, keep repeating it. I mean, this is literally almost a parallel version of what happened to Toronto in 2003 with the first SARS virus, coronavirus one, uh, again, emerging in a similar scenario, predictable, and then being transmitted globally with huge economic and health impacts. This one's more contagious, so it adds a whole new dimension. Um, what would you say, because I, I was just sharing with you before we taped that I had malaria, and then I ended up getting cerebral malaria. And personally, I was very arrogant, thinking that I would be fine. So do you think there's a part of us, maybe that's why, why we're finding ourselves in this situation, because you say that this was predictable? Yeah, I mean, I think many people have shown that there's certain things that we do that promote diseases not only to emerge, but we disseminate them very clearly with uh, rapid movements of people and goods. But the fact that um, we're still doing the same thing that caused these things to emerge, we're still not resourcing countries in terms of monitoring and surveillance um, so that we really aren't doing the steps that we could have done, should have done to prevent not only this one from emerging, but there'll be subsequent ones. And speaking of malaria, much of your career has been spent studying malaria. Uh, We have a clip of you. Are you ready for it? It's from 20 years ago on March 2nd, 2000. Uh, Sheldon, please roll. Canadians are some of the best traveled populations in the world. It's estimated three to five million of us travel internationally every year with large numbers of people going to and through areas where diseases like malaria are now rampant. We've had at least seven people die of malaria in Ontario and Quebec in the last few years. Canada can boast one of the highest rates of imported malaria in the developed world. I'm not sure we should be very proud of that statistic, but over the last five years, we've annually reported somewhere between 500 and over 1,000 cases of malaria each and every year. What lessons have you learned studying malaria that can be applied to COVID-19? Right. I mean, I guess we've taken a a more holistic approach. I mean, malaria is a very serious infection and it remains a serious problem globally. But what we've learned is that many severe infections, including COVID, behave in very similar ways. Many people get infected. Only a small proportion of people become critically ill. And if we can identify those people early, we can improve survival and their outcome. The problem is that we don't have good tools to do that. 
So um, even with COVID, the majority of people will have self-limited uncomplicated disease and a smaller proportion need to be in hospital, need to be supported. Uh, in low resource settings that are now getting a brunt of COVID, they have no good tools to do that. They have limited oxygen and not much in the way of ventilators. So they need to know when they first uh, identify someone, are they going to become critically ill? Do I need to put this person in hospital or can I safely send that person home? That's the same problem we face with all infections. About a billion or more people get a fever every year and the great majority of those will respond without anything, uncomplicated self-result. Maybe one or two percent become more severe. So we need tools to find that one or two percent and we need to focus our resources on those to improve outcomes. Malaria is the same case. So what our lab's been doing is trying to develop tools that will allow us rapidly, five minutes with an inexpensive $1 test to allow healthcare workers everywhere in the world, whether it's COVID, malaria, sepsis, identify the children and adults who need to be in hospital, who need to be supported while safely sending others that can be managed at home uh, and, and save resources. So you're saying that the tools that we need is rapid testing? The tools we need are rapid triage tests. Mm -hmm. The same way that if um, you, your hospitals get overwhelmed with COVID, let's use COVID as an example. Um, you wanna be able to not miss anyone who needs to be admitted, who might need to be in ICU, who might need to be on an expensive new therapy. But you don't want to over-admit people, occupy your beds, particularly people that will do fine, that can be managed more safely uh, at, at home isolation. So the same for other infections, um, whether that's malaria or bacterial infections, most of us will do well. We need better tools to find the people that won't do well so that we can focus limited health resources not only in rich countries, but particularly in low-income countries to maximize benefit, to improve survival, but not waste them. If we over-admit 50% of people, um, we end up running out of money and not being able to focus those resources on where they would help, where they would do benefit. In 1904, William Osler, who has been described as the father of modern medicine, observed, and I quote, said, my patients are not dying from their infections, they are dying from their reactions to them. Um, how does that, what he said, apply to what's happening during this pandemic? Yeah, it, it goes back to what I was saying, that all of these very different infections share common pathways and that actually lead to, uh, to death we can identify those pathways earlier. That's what Osler was describing as a reaction. And those pathways can be identified in a finger, like a marker of them can be identified in a finger prick blood sample that can be detected by an inexpensive test. What that allows us to do is rapidly find the people, whether it's COVID, sepsis, malaria, dengue, whatever the infection that are tracking to something severe. So that means they can be referred and admitted. And also it suggests that we can have common therapies that would be useful against a broad range of infections that are severe. So those, those reactions that, that Osler was referring to really come down to um, our, our immune system. It gets overactivated and it damages our blood vessels. So if we can identify those processes that are happening in people when we first see them, we can triage them to hospital. We call it risk stratophile. Why safely sending other people home to be managed as outpatients or at home isolation in, in the case of COVID. So uh, 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 Osler was absolutely on the money and you'll see papers now coming out describing how 
that COVID host response uh, is actually a, a major driver in bad outcomes with COVID. But that's the same story with sepsis. Sepsis really is your own host response is what hurt, hurt, uh, hurts you, not the organism so much. So the organism becomes secondary. It's how you respond to it. And can we identify the people who are not responding well? And then can we intervene in that response to improve an outcome? That is really a new paradigm of the way we need to treat severe infections, irregardless of the etiology. When SARS, you mentioned SARS before, and I remember uh, when SARS uh, hit Toronto, how we were all on guard. I actually remember traveling to the States and people staying away from me when they found out that I was from Toronto. Um, but not as many people were affected as they have been with COVID-19. What did we learn then that should have helped us, but maybe we weren't as vigilant? I think what we learned then is that um, the origin of this thing is driven by human behavior, the origin of these coronaviruses entering the human population. And they're similar to almost all emerging diseases. They all share themes that most of these agents, these pathogens, are naturally found in, a, in an animal reservoir. And then they're given an opportunity to jump to humans. We call that a zoonosis, basically a bug leaps from a bat, in this case, often into an intermediate host and then into us. The thing that we seem to forget is we're the ones that are creating that problem. We're the ones that bring animals together in close quarters, for example, in these wet markets that would never normally be in the same space together, allowing microbes to jump into a host and then with humans all, of, all about into humans. So we, we tend to demonize microbes and think that they're terrible. But I think if you look at emerging infections, they've got human fingerprints all over them. We are the major drivers of our own problems. And we need to put our, 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 you know, our ante into the, into the pot in terms of our responsibility for driving these. If we continue to alter environments, do unusual animal husbandry, we're creating these pandemics and these problems. So we, we need to put our, uh, our activity in the problem front and center. Um, we're being told that in order for life to go back to normal, the only way that can happen is if we do get a vaccine. Is that the wrong way to approach this? I think it's reactive. It's like, you know, um, and, and we're, humans, we're really, we, you know, we're, we think we're a very clever primate, but there's not a lot of evidence to support that. We, we don't, we know that we need to prevent things. We know that, that there are steps that we can do to do that, but we tend to wait till it's a huge problem and then throw a ton of resources at it. So I think mitigating the emergence of infections, early monitoring, and our other major problem is antimicrobial resistance, controlling the inappropriate use of antibiotics and antimicrobials in animals and in humans. We're, we're a major driver of our own problems. And um, we need to address that front and foremost, to prevent these things from emerging and spreading in the first place. I keep thinking, what if we don't find a vaccine? What then? Well, I guess we'll move towards some sort of herd immunity, which um, you know is to be defined. There is some evidence that um, people are getting con consistent immunity following infection, although that's uh, debatable. But this is not a, a, an efficient, cost-effective, or simple way to manage a pandemic. Even if a vaccine becomes available, studies are showing that uh, there are people who are hesitant to get it and others who refuse to get the vaccine because they don't believe in vac uh, vaccinations. How do we manage that then? That is a huge problem. Uh, and I think 
I, I don't claim to have the solutions, but I think we need to do a much better job of science literacy in our educational system so that people understand um, the risks and benefits of things that are done in healthcare. Nothing has had more of a positive impact on human health than vaccines. They are the most cost-effective thing we've ever done. So how this has been turned, twisted into a danger is really beyond me. Our immune systems are amazing. They're used to, in our evolution, handling thousands of microbial insults all the time. We now live in a more sterile world where, in fact, our immune systems they need something to do. This is how we evolve. This is how they protect us. So giving a vaccine is simply giving an opportunity in a safe way for your body to see cholera or typhoid or malaria uh, in a way that it can respond appropriately as opposed to a death. Um, it's irrational not to see the value in vaccines. But of course, they need to be developed and tested safely. Um, so it's, it's ironic that at the same time that we've built very amazing safety processes into vaccine development that we see Russia going by them without safety and efficacy trials. So again, this is not, not the way forward. Uh, we have a good way forward. A lot of um, resources right now are being spent on trying to, uh, I guess, contain COVID-19. And you've been studying pandemics for a very long time. Do you worry that resources are being taken from studying something like malaria and TB? Oh, absolutely. I think that there, there will be a bad backdrop to this um, where programs in Africa for measles vaccination, measles is a massive killer. We've had huge outbreaks again. Um, vaccine, uh, anti-vaccine lobbies have, have certainly uh, um, contributed to this problem. Malaria control programs, things that um, are important because they cause death and illness in millions of people um, are being pushed to the side or being disrupted. So I think not only will you have COVID issues, we're going to have a negative impact on all our other important public health programs to control other globally important diseases like tuberculosis, HIV and malaria. And, and infections in pregnancy, which um, and, and potentially impact our whole next generation of children on this planet. We have another clip from our Studio 2 program on pandemics. Let's take a look. The most dramatic difference between the plagues that swept through uh, early human civilization is that because of the speed and volume at which people and goods move now, we're compressing time. The disease that killed a small child in a foreign country yesterday can kill yours today and seed a global pandemic tomorrow. Now that you've watched uh, that program you were on 20 years ago, do you, I know you're a very kind person, but do you kind of feel like saying, I told you so? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, that doesn't get us anywhere. I just um, would love to see us become collectively as a species more proactive in areas where we know the upfront cost will way benefit the downstream um, and prevent huge costs afterwards. Think if, in fact, the wet markets for this particular scenario had not been allowed to continue and that this virus had not been allowed to generate spread into an intermediate host and then go global that we would have all these resources um, to do progressive work rather than reinventing the wheel. Um, now, we can't put the genie back in the bottle. Um, I think we just need to learn. And, and, you know, all the cliches, history will, you know, repeat itself if we don't learn. We don't seem to be learning. And I think that we need to revisit that, really 
proactively once this thing's contained and stop the next pandemic from again derailing the planet's economy its, and its future, particularly for the next generation of children. Does COVID-19 worry you? Yes, um, I, I think it's like other severe infections um, that we also tend to ignore. Um, people may not know, but uh, sepsis, it, uh, COVID is a sepsis syndrome. So it's a syndrome where um, whether it's a bacterial infection, which is what we're used to in our ICUs, can produce organ failure and death, leading cause. It, it constitutes, you know, 41 million cases a year and 11 million deaths. It's, it's more common cause of death than all of the cancers combined, yet you don't hear about it. So um, I, I think this needs to be brought forefront, uh, particularly because the burden of these deaths is in young children in low and middle income countries, which, again, are the future of this planet, the people that are going to really need to fix um, the scenarios that are now being dealt out to them. Um, we've been hearing um, something called, well, maybe I'm making this up, uh, people being fatigued with all the lockdown measurements that have been in place to try to contain the spread of COVID-19. Would you say that the first wave is over? Hmm. Um, it, it depends on where you are. I'm not, I'm not sure in the United States, they have, it's, it's already been stated several times, they've ever finished their first wave. I think every pandemic that we have from recorded history always has a second wave. So it you know, clearly motivates us to assume it's going to happen and be prepared. Um, I don't think this is going to go quietly into the night until we have an effective vaccine. Um, but we don't know. We really don't know. How would you assess Canada's response to COVID-19? Um, I think at many levels, we did a good job. Uh, at some, we did not do a good job. Obviously, long-term care facilities, for example, was a major failure. Um, but I think in other ways, the public responded appropriately. They followed advice, although it changed a lot. It was generally on target. And I think that we've done well. Could we have done better? Yes, but we've done well. Where do you think we could have done better? Well, long-term care, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and earlier responses and um, you know, dealing more with imported cases, because clearly a lot of these came from the U.S. in the early days. And and mitigating cases that continue to come in, or at least having better systems to uh, to define them and observe them and prevent them. And you look at when you look at what's happening around the world globally. What are we doing right, and what are we doing wrong? Well, sadly, the United States is demonstrating what to do wrong. I think many other countries have done extremely well, um, and island nations obviously may have had the easiest job in New Zealand and Australia of containing it, but quickly it can reappear. I think one of the major gaps is that we're, and we've just been funded to do this, and I think it's really important, is asking the questions, what does COVID do to pregnant women? Um, And what impact could it have, not only on making birth outcomes worse, but also on neurodevelopment and outcome of those children exposed in utero in the womb? Um, We're learning a lot in science and medicine recently, and that seems to be one of the most important areas where your proverbial, you know, gram of prevention and a kilo of cure, preventing infections in pregnant women can mitigate all sorts of lifelong problems. And I think... Such um, as? Well, for example, um, I'll give you a North American problem and I'll give you uh, an African problem. So we just finished a study looking at malaria and pregnancy. 125 million pregnant women are at risk of malaria every year. 
even if they get malaria and it's quickly treated, um, it alters neurodevelopment in children and that probably will persist for their life. Um, in North America, a flu is a common infection. We have a vaccine for it. The Center for Disease Control did an elegant study decades ago that looked at, does flu really make um, pregnancy outcomes worse? And it didn't, but they re-enrolled those children 20 years later and their risk of bipolar disorder went up four times. Influenza does not cause bipolar disorder, but our current understanding of many neuropsychiatric disorders, autism, bipolar, major uh, depression, schizophrenia, is that we have genetic susceptibility, but it doesn't usually manifest. It needs a second hit. The second hit can be an infection in a pregnant woman because it alters neurodevelopment in that child and makes those diseases more likely to manifest. So think about that. A simple prevention in pregnancy for flu, preventing decades of neuropsychiatric illness that costs not only huge um, impact of families and communities, but healthcare dollars. That is in part preventable. A lot of ripple effects. Dr. Kane, I know you're very busy and we appreciate you making time for us. Thank you so much for your insights this evening. My pleasure, thank you. The Agenda in the Summer with Nam Kiwanuka is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario, and by viewers like you. Thank you.